0: On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat on the platform and delivered a public address to them. The people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a mortal. And immediately because he had not given the glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. That is the story of the death of King Herod as told in the twelfth chapter of the Book of Acts. It is a story that is so fantastic that you might be skeptical that it really happened like that, but it is a story that is largely confirmed by other ancient sources, including the Antiquities by Flavius Josephus. There are a number of Herods in the Bible, and you could be forgiven for confusing them. This one is usually called Herod Agrippa. So, I'm just going to refer to him as Agrippa. He was the grandson of King Herod the Great and the brother-in-law and nephew of King Herod Antipas, who ruled Galilee in the time of Christ. At the time of his death, he had been made ruler of all Judea, Samaria, and Galilee by his friend, the Roman Emperor Claudius, almost regaining the kingdom that had once belonged to his grandfather. But then he died. My feeling is that we really only have enough of his story in the Book of Acts to make us curious about the rest. A few blanks need to be filled in, and that is what I'm here for. And it turns out that King Herod Agrippa keeps turning up at some unexpected places in the New Testament story, kind of like Forrest Gump in that movie, you know the one called Forest Gump this is retelling the Bible episode 3.14 Herod Gump aka Agrippa Agrippa was five years old when his grandfather murdered his father. It was his oldest memory, and in many ways the sharpest. He could remember the cries of the servants in the bedchamber, and the smell of the blood. He could see his mother, Berenice, with her clothes torn, collapsed on the floor and weeping, while his grandfather paced back and forth with a strange, almost triumphant look in his eye. I had no choice, he said over and over. They were conspiring against me. I had to do it, Bernie. The memory was so clear, because he saw it regularly in his dreams. Even now. Almost five decades later, the nightmares still came almost weekly. There was a time when he was younger, and he would wake up screaming. That, mercifully, had stopped eventually. But there were still times when he awoke frozen with fear and drenched with sweat. It was still so very real to him perhaps because that was also the day that everything changed for him. Within a week, he was packed up and sent away to Rome. Apart from a few trusted servants, he left everyone that he loved behind him, especially his mother. At the time, he resented his family for sending him away, felt as if they had rejected him. It was only later that he realized that they had probably saved his life. It was something that he discovered when he finally became the ruler of a good portion of his grandfather's old kingdom. One day, in one of Herod's old palaces, his clerks came upon a record of an order, given by King Herod the Great, around the same time that Agrippa had been sent away. Apparently, King Herod had sent a division of men to Bethlehem with orders that they kill every boy under the age of two who lived there, because he had heard a rumor of some child who had been born in that area who might just have a better claim to be king of the Jews than him. Apparently, Agrippa's granddad didn't draw the line at killing children that he saw as a threat. Grateful that he had been sent away, Agrippa ordered that the records be completely destroyed. His exile in Rome had opened up so many doors for Agrippa, Like so many other sons and grandsons of kings, he lived in the emperor's house. You made a lot of very useful friends in a place like that. None of his new friends was more useful than Drusus. Everyone said that Drusus would succeed his father, Tiberius Caesar, one day and rule the whole world. But Agrippa didn't love Drusus for that. Just a few years apart in age, the two boys had been inseparable from the day that he had arrived, and Drusus had defended him when the other boys had teased him because he was circumcised. The two grew up together, and Drusus became a fine man whom Agrippa admired. He knew he would make a good emperor some day, and looked forward to becoming a faithful retainer, just like Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, the man in whose honor he had been named, had been the greatest supporter of the great emperor, Augustus. In fact, Agrippa became so certain that that was the glorious future that awaited him, that he began to borrow heavily to support his gambling habit. He soon found himself deep in debt, but he knew that that wouldn't matter once he had become the second most powerful man in Rome. That glorious future suddenly looked very different, however, when Drusus was murdered, poisoned by his wife and her lover. Agrippa was heartbroken at the death of his friend and disillusioned that the corruption of Rome had killed one of its best citizens. But it was not just his grief that made him flee the city that day. It was his creditors. If he hadn't taken a ship from Ostia, in the dead of night, he might not have lived through the week. Agrippa ended up hiding out in an old Herodian palace in Idumea. It was one of the darkest episodes of his life. The palace was in the midst of a dreary desert. And most every day, he would go up on the roof of the palace and look out over the desolate wasteland and think that it was such a perfect representation of the future that lay before him. He had no prospects, no hopes of advancement, and there were many days when he came close to just throwing himself down upon the rocks below. But then, the god of fortune, or perhaps it was indeed Yahweh, the god that the Herodians had embraced in their quest to rule over the Judeans. In any case, some god finally remembered him and sent him a savior. His salvation this time came in the form of his sister, Herodias. He didn't remember all that much about his sister from the brief time they had lived together. But there was one thing that everyone had always known about her. She was ambitious, perhaps more ambitious than any of the men in the family had ever been. And it was hard to be a woman with ambition, living in a world that didn't allow women any actual achievements, apart from childbearing. But Herodias did have one weapon in her arsenal, one thing that would help her get ahead. Her blood, the blood of Mariamne, her grandmother, flowed in her veins, and that was the blood of the last truly Jewish kings of Judea. No living son of Herod the Great had that blood, and they all wanted to tie themselves to it. Herodias was married to one of those sons, her own half-uncle called Herod II, and she even had a daughter with him. But then she decided that that husband was just not ambitious enough for her tastes, so she divorced him to marry her other half-uncle, Herod Antipas. Herodias now married to the most powerful and ambitious Herodian in the region, was sure that she would ride his coattails to ever greater personal power and glory. She was happy like she had never been before and in a magnanimous mood. So when she heard that her poor brother, poor Herod Agrippa, was so far down on his luck, she persuaded her new husband to give him a large sum of money and a lucrative position in a city under his control. Things were suddenly looking up for Agrippa, and he would be eternally grateful to his sister. Agrippa would never forget the first night he was invited to dine with his sister, and her new husband. He had recently arrived in Galilee in answer to his sister's letter, and he was brought to the palace on a most auspicious occasion, for it was the celebration of Antipas's birthday. The ruler of Galilee in the Perea was in a most excellent mood, and the wine and food was abundant. Agrippa immediately warmed to his new brother-in-law, who was an excellent fellow. It seemed he had indeed landed on his feet again. During his time in Rome, Agrippa had picked up many useful skills. One of those skills was the ability to mix with the people and gather information. It had been so essential for someone living in the imperial palace that by now it was like second nature to him. By the time that Agrippa had spent about an hour talking with the gathered guests and the servants, the servants were always the best sources of information, he already knew more about the challenges that Antipas faced than the man himself did. That evening was when he discovered just how much opposition there was in the countryside to the recent marriage of Antipas and Herodias. The people were enraged for many reasons. When Antipas divorced his first wife to marry Herodias, his old father-in-law, an Arab king, had been so angry and insulted that he had gathered his soldiers and mounted an invasion which had led to a disastrous defeat for the Galilean ruler. People hated that. People also objected to the fact that Antipas was now married to his own brother's ex-wife, which, some argued, was contrary to the ancient Jewish laws. One particularly talkative slave filled Agrippa in on the popular discontent. It was led, he said, by a popular preacher by the name of John, who had based himself in Antipas's territory of the Perea beyond the Jordan River. This John had been fomenting revolt by gathering people by the river and dipping them in the water, sanctifying them for what he called a new conquest of the promised land. Agrippa learned, much to his surprise, that this dangerous activity had been allowed to continue for so long, but apparently it had. John had only run into trouble when he began to openly denounce the ruler's new marriage. He had been arrested and, Agrippa learned, even now was locked in the dungeons below the palace. Herodias was apparently furious with the man, and wanted to see him dead as soon as possible. But apparently Antipas was being a bit more cautious. He was smart enough to know that when you are fighting in the court of public opinion, killing an enemy can sometimes make that enemy stronger. The highlight of the evening's entertainment was a dance. It was performed by the queen's own daughter from her previous marriage, a girl who was still going through puberty named Salome. If it was possible, the girl was even more beautiful than her mother, though there was still a certain innocence to her. When she entered the court dressed in fine fabrics, Agrippa could immediately tell from the look on her new stepfather's face that the man had already begun to form certain fantasies regarding this new addition to his household. The wine had lowered his inhibitions, and he openly leered at her. The dance that she performed was nothing special, at least not compared to the kind of professional performances that Agrippa had been familiar with in Rome. But Antipas was clearly moved by what he saw. At the end, Antipas was so carried away that he made one of those foolish promises that Agrippa thought only happened in legends and fairy tales. Before the whole court, he promised his stepdaughter that he would give her anything, anything that she might ask for or desire. There was a quick and quiet consultation between the girl and her mother, and then Salome answered this invitation. She declared that she only wanted one thing, the head of that dangerous rebel, John, on a silver plate. When he heard that, Herod Antipas went so pale that Agrippa feared that he was about to faint. But he really did have no choice. He had made the promise in front of everybody. Soldiers were dispatched immediately, and within the hour, a silver plate did appear, bearing the gruesome evidence that the command had been carried out. Agrippa registered the horror and the shock on the face of the ruler, and many others who were in attendance. The sight did little to stimulate anyone's appetite, and took all of the joy out of the party, which fizzled out soon afterwards. But the look of triumph on the face of Agrippa's sister, that was something that he would never forget. Before his story was over, Agrippa would inherit the kingdom of Herod Antipas, and indeed much more. But there was still a long journey before that could happen. In time, his fortunes somewhat restored, he made it back to Rome, and even into the household of the emperor again. Like before, Agrippa's friendliness and easygoing attitude helped him to befriend the most powerful people in court. And by that time, The most powerful person of all was gaius julius great grandson of the first emperor augustus gaius was what everyone called him to his face behind his back they called him by the name that history would give him caligula caligula meant little boots and that seemed a very fitting name Tiberius had officially adopted Caligula as his heir, and everyone knew that he would be the next to rule over the empire. The more he got to know the young man, the more that prospect frightened Agrippa. Caligula was vain, self-centered, and impulsive. But Agrippa also figured that Caligula was his last, best hope of getting close to imperial power. So Agrippa did what everyone else was doing. He flattered Caligula, stroked his ego. Nobody was better at flattery than Agrippa. Except, well, he went too far one day. He told young Gaius that he could hardly wait for old man Tiberius to die so that there could be a new emperor. And that comment was overheard and got reported to old man Tiberius. Agrippa was thrown in prison for that. It was while he was in prison that everything changed for Agrippa. From his infancy, he had been raised in the faith that his family had adopted. He was taught the Torah and the worship of the one true God and Creator. Those original beliefs were somewhat muddied, however, by what he had been exposed to in Rome. The in- credible stories of the old Roman gods and the wise teachings of the Greek philosophers. As a result, he was never quite sure how to think about the reality of divinity in this world. God remained a powerful idea for him, but not really an idea that he could picture or grasp. It was while he was in prison that all of that changed for him. For the first time in his life, he actually experienced something divine. The voice of God came to him through a seer who shared his cell. The man told Agrippa many things about himself, things that he couldn't possibly have known. Agrippa was deeply moved, especially when the seer laid upon him this prophecy. My friend Herod, he said, the day will come when the goddess Diana will send you a messenger. That messenger will come in the form of her sacred bird, the owl. On the day when you see an owl, and you hear that owl's cry, on that day, you will be released from this prison and you shall become a mighty king but beware my lord for when the goddess sends you an owl messenger again on that day you will die and then it had happened Agrippa looked out of the window of his cell one day to see a most unusual sight Right at midday there roosted an owl, on a ledge, just out of his reach. The owl looked right at him and hooted, before spreading its wings and flying off. Within the hour the news had begun to spread through the palace. Tiberius was dead, and Caligula had been hailed as the new emperor. Everything was changed." The rise of his friend Caligula allowed Herod Agrippa to rise in his wake. He returned to the land that his ancestors had ruled and was granted the territories that had belonged to his uncle Philip. There he proved himself a good administrator to Romans and Jews alike. But his rule was not peaceable, <laughs> largely thanks to his good friend Caligula, who had somehow gotten it into his head that he needed to impose the worship of himself upon the Jewish people. Agrippa understood better than anyone else how insane such an idea was, but one simply didn't say no to Caligula. You see, the emperor wanted to have a massive statue of himself installed right in the courtyard of the great temple of the Jewish God in Jerusalem. When word of this plan leaked out, revolt broke out throughout the entire countryside. People were so angry that they wouldn't even call the thing what it was. They didn't call it a statue of the Emperor or of Caligula. They called it the desolating sacrilege that was about to be set up where it ought not to be. And then they darkly muttered things like, Let the hearer understand. Though Agrippa did not rule over the territory that included Jerusalem, The people appealed to him, knowing that he had friendship with the emperor. All of the people, even the Roman commanders, understood that if this thing actually came to pass, they would lose control of the entire situation in Judea. So Agrippa intervened. He felt that he had no choice. And the first time... Much to his own surprise, Agrippa actually succeeded in persuading the emperor to back off from his disastrous plan. But he knew that the emperor's patience would not last long. And when Caligula sent the order a second time, he knew there would be no dissuading him. He prepared for the worst— Expecting that chaos and rebellion in Judea and Galilee would quickly overflow into his own territories. Thus it was that Agrippa was just as relieved as anyone else when the news arrived that Caligula had been assassinated by his own guards, and that Claudius, who was fortunately another childhood friend, had been elevated to the purple. The rise of Emperor Claudius brought new heights to the career of Herod Agrippa. It was at this point that he finally earned the title of king and inherited the kingdom, or at least most of it, that had once belonged to his grandfather. As the new king of the Jews, Agrippa enjoyed a wonderful honeymoon with the people. He made sure that the story of how he had persuaded Caligula to back off from his disastrous plan spread far and wide, and the Jews loved him for what he had done. The Judeans were also relieved, after so many years of direct rule by the Romans, to actually have a professing Jewish king over them. And Agrippa was pleased to play along. He kept his personal devotion to the goddess Diana, who had reached out to him at his lowest point, private, and outwardly practiced as a model Jew. One of the things that he did to show his zealousness to the people had to do with a new sect that had grown up in Jerusalem, a sect many of the Jewish leaders found quite distressing. Agrippa didn't really much care about the disagreements between the various sects of the Jews. There were so many of them, and they sometimes seemed to disagree over such petty things. But he knew that persecuting the newer ones was a great way to earn the favor of the more established ones. So... He summarily executed one of the ringleaders of this new group, a certain James, and arrested another one known as Peter. The Peter fellow disappeared somehow. He just walked out of the place where he had been confined, and Agrippa sort of got bored with the whole thing after that and forgot about it. Except, of course, for the executions of the guards who had let down their guards. After that, Agrippa's star only continued to rise. His power began to expand even beyond his assigned borders. In one diplomatic coup, he was even able to bring the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon under his effective control. But then came the crash, the one he had been warned about. He was in his capital of Caesarea he had decided to put on games in honor of the Emperor Claudius. Now, this was not really the kind of thing that he did to please his Jewish subjects, who generally found the games offensive. But there were many in his domains who were not Jews, and they just lapped up this kind of thing. The games were very good. The gladiator battles were bloody and exciting, the wild beasts, exotic and ferocious. The crowd loved it. When they were at the height of their enjoyment, the opportunity came for Herod Agrippa to stand and make a speech. He made an amazing figure, attired in silver and gold, and he spoke in glowing terms of his good friend Claudius, The people were swept away, and they shouted out their praises to the god Claudius. And then, just because it seemed to follow, they also praised their king Agrippa, and shouted out that he too ought to be recognized as a god. Agrippa immediately knew that such acclamation could get him into trouble. Greeks and all sorts of other peoples in the Eastern Empire felt quite comfortable hailing ruling monarchs as gods. But he knew that his Jewish subjects would never accept such an idea. But then, as he looked around, he realized that there were no Jews present. They never attended the games. So he let it slide He stood and bathed in the worship of the people. And then he saw it. The owl, again quite uncharacteristically in broad daylight, flew across the stadium from east to west. You couldn't miss it. And when he saw it, at that very moment... Everything suddenly went very cold, his eyes grew dim, and Herod Agrippa collapsed right there in front of all the people. King Herod Agrippa, the first of that name, died in great agony. A few days later he had been a friend of emperors a favorite of a goddess and as great a king of the Jews as ever his grandfather had been he had even been hailed as a god but in the end he died as a man and as all men do but he left his mark on history And he should not be forgotten. I am kind of amazed that I never realized just how much King Herod Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great, intersected with the events of the New Testament. Of course he is named, and the end of his story is told in the book of Acts. But did you ever realize how much he was there for the rest of the story? He would have been there, in the court of his grandfather, when King Herod sent the order to slaughter children in Bethlehem—an event, by the way, for which there is no historical evidence outside of the Gospel of Matthew and that historians rather doubt ever happened. But, considering that at that very moment in time, Herod the Great was ordering the death of his own son, Agrippa's father, what Matthew describes certainly fits with everything we know about the character of that king. Agrippa was also on the scene rekindling his relationship with his sister Herodias and her new husband Herod Antipas when John the Baptist was arrested and executed. In fact, John's criticism of that new marriage was the main cause of the Baptist's death. In addition, Agrippa played a part in the scandalous affair that is referred to somewhat obliquely as the desolating sacrilege in the thirteenth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, the planned installation of a statue of Emperor Caligula in the Jerusalem temple. What's more, the Book of Acts credits Agrippa with the invention of the persecution of the Christian Church. He was apparently the first political authority to do it, even if his attention seems to have quickly waned. The very idea of the persecution of the Church would have a huge impact on the history of the Roman Empire over the coming centuries. And then there is the bizarre and yet historically verified story of his death. The two sources of the story of his death, the Book of Acts and the Antiquities of Flavius Josephus, don't actually agree in every particular, but they are not all that hard to harmonize. It is quite a story. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible please come back for a new episode at the end of next month. Please tell other people about this podcast and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, and the mood music for this episode is Noble Race. The music is by Kevin McLeod and is licensed under the Creative Commons, and you will find links to it in the show notes send your requests, comments, and questions to Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.